with Stone's Throw and Jennifer Stone. We do ask you to stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, September the 4th. (laughs) Oh, 2007. And next Tuesday, let's see, that would be the 11th, September the 11th. Aha! (laughs) How many years? Six, is it, since 9-11? Aha! I was watching the last episode of The Sopranos last night. One of my favorite characters is a goofy gangster, is a complete um, blithering idiot. His name is Paulie. I love him. He's the one with the with the hair sticks up in front. Paulie. He says, uh, "In the midst of death, we are in life." Thinks about it for a minute. And he says, "Or is that the other way around?" Anyway, <laughs> Paulie's got it down. Oh, television is such a wonderful touchstone, especially these days when life is a calendar of catastrophe, yes. Life, death, that sort of thing. Every day is an anniversary of another disaster. You know, we're getting to be like the Russians. They just have, um, you know, one, <laughs> one, um, Monument to um, the dead after another. They're mourning 24-7. Oh, let's see. It's two years since Katrina. Uh, More than 60 years since Hiroshima. (laughs) And every day the body count all over the world. Yes, a dozen nations. Even even Princess Diana. Uh, Let's see. Several channels filled up with... um, the ten-year anniversary of the death of the people's princess. Four horsemen of the apocalypse, busy, busy, busy. And of course, what strikes me as curious these days is that um, we are not the victims so much as the perpetrators. Um, <laughs> we're, we're the bad guys, folks. Um, you know... Um, this is so strange. I think about it and think about it. Uh, I mean, uh, if we, if we are the good people and some people still think we are, and if we killed 140,000 people in Hiroshima, mainly women and children, on that single morning uh, in August, and soon thereafter repeated that act in Nagasaki, well, what can we expect of our enemies? 
the people who are not so good. Uh Oh, if we responded to an attack on the World Trade Center by invading a country that had no part in the attack on the Twin Towers, and if we are good, what can we expect of our enemies who are not good? (laughs) We are not gods. Um, I was thinking, yes, Madeleine Albright... She has apologized for saying it was okay to kill tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of Iraq children uh, as the price of peace or something. And she said, you know, she was a a damn fool, but uh, she was in office at the time, you know. She uh, has since said that she had time to think and it was not a wise thing to say. Uh, I I sometimes wonder, uh, you know, when will it be too late? Um, Think of McNamara. So late in the day. uh, Anyway, uh, I was looking this week at all the articles and books that I have on the decline and fall of our civilization, collapse of our national character, uh, the ways in which we have become... Uh, what is that? The most fearful people on the planet uh, are our strange situation. We seem to be, what is it, the strongest, most powerful people in history. At the same time, we are the most frightened, the most afraid. Uh, you figure it out. Check a piece. Let's see. I'm going to put some of it on... Thursday morning at 8.20, a little piece by Earl Shoris called The National Character. It's from Harper's, June 2007. Uh, it's all about the disposition to evil. <laughs> this, this tendency, yes, the banal quality of evil is discussed, but mostly it's just about the fact that we seem to have fallen into the abyss. And uh, very few people are willing to risk uh, what little they have or what they think they have to go against the tide. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me read you one little paragraph from Earl Shoris's piece on the national character. He says, the war, that is the war in Iraq, did not come about because of uh, a political miscalculation or the misreading of an unavoidable accident. It's not an error. It is an ethical failure that has spread through every department of this administration, into the Congress and down into the states. In the promoters of the war, Paul Wolfowitz, chief among them, we can see that fearful times, fearful ideas, underlay their history and their thinking. For Wolfowitz, it was family members killed in the Holocaust. For Cheney and Rumsfeld, it was the Cold War with its constant threat of a new kind of death, one that promised to obliterate all memory of the dead. This new kind of death heralded the final triumph of technology over the human desire to remain, to imagine someone in centuries to come, noting that the scattered stones had been worked by an intelligent hand. The word virtue, in either the Greek or Christian sense, does not apply to the Bush administration 
or to many of its cohort in Congress, some of our representatives now lie. <laughs> uh, some accept bribes. Uh, at least one abused children. Many participate in fixed elections. And then there is this war. The result has been an American decline so precipitous it may not be reversed for generations, if ever. If there was a method for the accomplishment of the fall, it may have been the wish of the country to engage life at a distance, to think of grand issues. <laughs> ah, yes. I remember, yes, the Pope thinks in centuries, and so does this administration, the works and minds of philosophers and fools, but... We're not willing to engage a world where white bread is sold by the slice or a man must labor for an hour to earn a tomato. This distance thing, it's a means of managing fear. That's it. That's it. The thing about it is that if we have another, what is it, 16 months of a government with this disposition to evil, there will be time enough to compound these acts and for these failures to settle into permanence. Yes, we may become something that will never, never, what is it, never be capable of reform. The undoing of these last six years may not be possible, and certainly it won't happen soon. Most of my friends think that this disposition to evil is limited to the Bush administration. Oh, and to some of the folks in the legislature that uh, follow the prayers. But they say there's, that, there's an itch in that idea. Bush and his minions in Congress, they were re-elected, remember, in 2004. Uh, whether that was a, uh, well, they did steal it fair and square the second time, but, you know, uh, could there have been... Any cause for that but fear? And would the country have turned against him if the predictions of his court of fools had been correct and the invasion and occupation had been a piece of cake? The kinds of death that make us fearful now have no antecedents. No one had used a weapon of mass destruction before Hiroshima and Nagasaki and no one has used such a weapon since. But there are thousands of such weapons waiting, waiting in the wings. The first step in understanding how the country will think of this different death is the understanding that the actions of these last six years were not a proper response a disposition to evil is not a resolution of fear. And uh, Earl Shores goes on to say a lot of things, and I wrote lots of notes <laughs> all the way back to FDR. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's a lot. That's a lot, Franklin. Uh, it is very strange, strange that we have arrived at this point where uh, those of us, well, the most powerful nation, as I said, in human history, is now the most frightened and therefore the most cowardly. I'm going to be a chauvinist and blame it all on 
militarism. <laughs> yes, militarism. Blame it all on the death culture, on Thanatos, as opposed to Eros. We used to use the words masculine and feminine, but I don't dare do that anymore. It's just too, what is it, too difficult semantically uh, to pin this down. Let's call it the... the um, uh, the peacemakers, the caregivers, the healers, as opposed to those people who think that you can get rid of your enemy by murdering him. Yes, <laughs> yes. killing your enemy as the way to freedom. That's what we're up against. Oh, they're wonderful guys. Uh, what was it? I used to say, yes, writing is fighting. But more and more lately, I think I'm trying to get rid of words. Um, I always liked the word struggle. But still, uh, I've changed. What was that? Lily Tomlin used to say, uh, she used to say, why doesn't someone try softer? And I always thought, what an icky thing. That, that just doesn't work. That just doesn't work. You know, we have to try harder. We've got to be tough, you know, uh, we have to be strong in our love. Uh, Denise Levertov used to say there comes a time when only anger is love. Finally, I realized that it's all just a, a semantic soup. It's nothing but words. Uh, I'm not sure. Lately, um, I think of the feminist poets, all my dear, my dead dears, yes, all the feminist poets who have now been, what is the word, uh, not n not rejected, but put to one side, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're the ones who were burned very badly. Uh, and, of course, uh, the burnt child fears the fire, the feminist fears the fire, and the fire, of course, is in the belly of the beast who raped the, uh, what is it, the feminist principle, uh, the capacity for intimacy has been destroyed by the, uh, let's just call it the blood feud, the blood lust, the horrible darkness that has overcome us. Um, uh, someone said the other day, you know, you just can't trust anyone anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because another... Uh, Another thing in this magazine I'm reading here says, oh yes, uh, talks endlessly about uh, the trend toward the culture of victimization. I thought that's pretty funny, yes, because while we are cowardly and fearful, we still demand uh, the role of victim. It's the damnedest thing. How can you, how does that work? How do you put yourself in that position? Uh, I never thought of myself as a victim, certainly not uh, from the woman position, any more than uh, oh, Nietzsche or Schopenhauer thought of themselves as victims. Uh, see, Hitler thought of himself as a victim of uh, the Jews. Women who are scorched or scorned, uh, you know, uh, they're always held up. Remember, they were called wounded. Geraldine Ferraro, yes, she's, she's a wounded feminist. She bites, you know. Uh, my favorite uh, is the one I was talking about last week, Andrea Dworkin. 
a woman who died in her late fifties, and I'm still trying to decide whether or not I should um, tell you all about her last days and the terrible things that happened to that uh, tragic woman. Uh, she is certainly someone who died of a broken heart or who was killed by the society that um, that was supposed to nurture her, that was supposed to, um, what is the word, uh, use her wisdom to grow up. Uh, I want to read you a little more of Andrea Dworkin. Um, there's another feminist that I want to get started on soon, Robin Morgan. She is a... Um, Entirely different case. She has a new book out called Fighting Words. Uh, and I want to save it for the next marathon because, uh, it's a toolkit for combating the religious right. <laughs> yes. It's called Fighting Words. Sometimes fighting is the thing we have to do. Uh, with Andrea Dworkin, see, she had something we call the assault of the pen. Pen being mightier than the sword and, uh, she tried, what is that? She tried to use her, her style, her, um, what is the word, her polemic, her rhetoric, you know, to box the compass, to give people a tremendous uh, zen slap. She called Tolstoy um, a, oh, let's see, what did she call Tolstoy? She was really said that he was perfectly awful and that he loathed his wife. <laughs> yes. Um, poor Tolstoy. She said that his marital disorders um, uh, came from Tolstoy's disgust, uh, his association of dirt and death, his fear of uncleanness. I'm not sure. She was really into pathology. Uh, check out Andrea Dworkin. She's what I would call, she's the woman who went to hell and back to get us some information. And of course she went too far, and of course she overdid it, and of course she exaggerated. But her critical um, observations are enlightening. Um, her rhetoric, I think, overrides her sensibility uh, I think that what she discovered, what she found out, was so overwhelming that it killed her. I put it that way. That's why, uh, rather than read her books on sexual politics, I tend to uh, reach for her little books on, uh, oh, let's call it her inner life. Yes, little books about her inner life. Uh, I would recommend for those of you... Someone wrote me again the other day about Andrea Dworkin, and you just look her up on the net. You can find everything there. But uh, the best book, well, Intercourse is the one that made the, the most trouble. But um, I would suggest the early books, a book called Woman Hating, and a book called Pornography, and a novel called Ice and Fire, a collection of short stories, and uh, a book called Right Wing Women. Fascinating stuff. Um, she was educated at Bennington, and she has been dead now since 2004. Uh, she definitely 
is the woman who got it. And, of course, once she got it, it killed her. Let me read you just a little bit of uh, her story. She's the sort of woman who, as James Baldwin used to say, he could not live in the world without being in a continual state of rage. And she, of course, felt that way about being a woman. Uh, <laughs> this morning on KPFA's morning show, we heard a discussion of, uh, what is that, um, uh, fatigue, yes, rage fatigue. Remember, compassion fatigue? Now we have outrage fatigue. I mean, you can be just so outraged for just so long, and then, you know, you have to give up and go to the movies. Okay. <laughs> the thing is that Andrea Dworkin couldn't do that. She writes about herself in the persona of Bertha Schneider. And as I said, this is my doppelganger, my alter ego, uh, here she writes of Bertha Schneider's unrelenting sadness. Bertha Schneider remembered her unrelenting sadness, her hidden part, all covered in the luxuriant twine of personality, learned facts, sardonic humor. <laughs> oh, what a life our Bertha has led, said the ignorant. Bertha Schneider had unrelenting sadness flowing through her very veins. And this had been a fact all of her long-lived life. It was her heritage, in fact. A sadness so large, so soft, so sweet, so resonant, that it interjected itself right into other people's sentences and punctuated her own. The dead of Bertha Schneider's Russian past churned in her. Whole dead bodies of sadness, never buried deep enough. This sadness had passed first in Mother Russia itself, from mother to daughter, and from mother to daughter, and from mother to daughter, in those dark, grim, Russian urban alleys where her forefathers had lived and studied Torah and died. The unrelenting sadness had been born on those narrow dirt and stone streets, amid shops and pogroms, amid hard benches and mountains of laundry to do, and meals to prepare, and yes, candles to light, heads to be covered, that sadness had been born amid the hard, screaming births and the quiet, obedient deaths amid the bone-poor hunger and the melancholy prayers, amid the vile hatred of her kind, that sadness had been born. Bertha had her own idea, in fact, as to how the sadness had been born. She had long ago learned that the memories of men, in whatever form, were not to be trusted. Generations of men had passed as scribes, rabbis, and storytellers, yet Bertha knew the real story had never been told. This was not mysterious to Bertha, since she knew that men avoided life, not respecting it, 
never daring to look it squarely in the face, treasuring only their sons and their own self-importance. This Bertha might lament, but she could not change it. For those generations of scribes and rabbis and storytellers, life had been an abstract canvas full of abstract ideas. Yes, there it is, there it is. I'm interrupting her. That distance. It's what we have done, yes. We have distanced ourselves. Ah, that's what's wrong with America, yes. Anyway, these men, these storytellers, they had obscured, she writes, the actual shape of things and the actual facts of the case. They had passed their avoidance of lines and proportions and direct commitment onto each other over so many generations that now it had soaked into the very marrow of their bones. And so they had invented law and war and philosophical arguments And with all their arsenals of culture and learning and civilization, they had stopped all dissent. Even as their children were starving, they could ignore life and argue the philosophical ramifications of death. In particular, the men of whom Bertha was thinking had worshipped their dreadful, dreadful God, mighty Jehovah. They had argued with hard hearts and stony arrogance, his laws to the nth degree, as others who cared only for life had washed and cooked and sewn and cleaned and given birth and served and scrubbed and died around them. This especially, this they would not look in the face. These others, the mothers and the daughters and the mothers of the mothers and the sisters and the aunts, had never written a word Their arguments had no capital letters or commentaries. These others had worked with their hands and hearts, scrubbing and cooking and enduring. And though each separate life was due to them and depended on them, still they were required to be silent, not invited to argue on the nature of existence, about which they knew much. Even as their legs were spread open in blood and pain, muscles stretched as the head or feet came through, flesh torn from this, the very mud of life, eight times, nine, thirteen times before they died, still their views were not solicited. There the sadness was born over and over again, as each new bloody head emerged, and with it their insides dislodged and gone from them, and still no one asked their opinion. This was no genteel sadness, small, pitiful, indulgent, weak. This was a howl into the bowels of the earth, urgent, bellowing, expressed only in the eye that cut like a knife, the mouth tangled, trying to escape the face. This sadness grew as they saw these children, flesh of their flesh, live and grow and die. This sadness grew as their children became sick, hungry, afraid. This sadness grew during pogroms and on regular days, 
when there was just the family life. This sadness especially grew as they saw their sons go off to the hard wooden benches, where the Rebbes would teach them, the sons, how to read and write and discourse on the law and life itself. This sadness especially grew as their sons forgot them, disdained the gift of life given in blood and pain, preferring instead to putter in stony arrogance in that world of men. That's Andrea Dworkin in a little book called The New Woman's Broken Heart, which has become my take-it-with-me-everywhere little Bible. Uh, Andrea's dead now, but she was, uh, is my prophet and my literary saint. This has been Jennifer Stone. And a little more next time about Eros and Thanatos, life and death. I'll be back on the air Thursday at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't, go easy. Go as easy as you can. KFCF and the Fresno Free College Foundation invite you to join us for an evening with Norman Solomon at our annual banquet, Sunday, September 9th. Norman Solomon's forte is disassembling the dissemblers. His latest book and film is War Made Easy, how presidents and pundits keep spinning us to death. Enjoy superb food prepared by Love and Garlic and original music by the Armin Albandian Trio. Banquet tickets are $40 per person. Speaker-only tickets are $10 general and 5 for students. Get tickets from... The Movies Video Shop at 1435 North Van Ness. 